and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with James Lindsay. James is the president and founder of NewDiscourses.com, an author, and one of the most essential voices, I believe, for making sense of the absurdity that has become the state of our political discourse, particularly those concerned with the excesses of the left. Some of you may know him for its pioneering work in the so-called squared hoax, which for those of you unfamiliar, we get into. We talk about critical social justice, the intellectual evolution of Marxist, postmodern, and postcolonial ideas into various strains of intersectionality, white fragility, a new social justice encyclopedia, reflexivity, and how to confront creeping identity politics in your everyday life. This is my favorite episode we've done so far, and it was a delight digging into these topics with James. So without further ado, I give you James Lindsay. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with uh, James Lindsay. James is the founder of the website uh, newdiscourses.com, as well as the author of a couple of books, How to Have Impossible Conversations, a uh, very practical guide, as well as the upcoming book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Uh, those are with co-authors um, Peter Bogosian and Helen Plucklows, uh, respectively, um, in that order. James, uh, welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. Do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself, tell the uh, listeners who you are and how you got involved in this work? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on. I'm pretty excited to be here. So I, as you said, I am the, I guess, president and founder of a new organization called New Discourses. Uh, it's at newdiscourses.com. And that's kind of an educational resources platform for people. And we will probably spend a bit of time talking about it. Mostly what I am interested in is how our politics have become so polarized and how language and uh, uh, kind of narrative or whatever has become so so dominant and tricky and, and is preventing us from having forthright and honest dialogue uh, about issues that matter. Uh, because of my background, I'm probably most well known for having taken part in the so-called Sokol Squared or uh, the Grievance Studies Affair. Uh, so-called hoax project um, that came out in 2018. So because I was oriented in looking at what I now call critical social justice uh, in rather a, a close fashion, a lot of what I do at New Discourses right now is dedicated to explaining the critical social justice movement in terms of how it thinks and what it's use, you know, and it has a lot of weird ways that it uses words and I want people to be able to understand what it's talking about on its own terms. So there's a lot of kind of explaining the critical social justice movement is kind of a main mission statement right now for what I'm up to. But more broadly, it's, if anything, is kind of um, cramping our ability to have forthright and honest political discourse, um, New Discourses is probably going to be interested in uh, either explaining it or exposing it or challenging it or giving alternatives to it. It's kind of a broadly philosophically liberal project in that sense. So you mentioned also, I, I, I am the author of a 
handful of books. Uh, the two you mentioned are the most recent, uh, How to Have Impossible Conversations with Peter Boghossian and Cynical Theories with Helen Pluckrose coming out this summer. Maybe because of the pandemic's changing things. We'll see. We have, <laughs> we have to figure out what we're doing with that. Yeah. Uh, our publisher actually emailed us today and said, do we still want to put the book out in June seeing as Amazon isn't shipping books at all? <laughs> oh, like, that's... Oh, Interesting. Problem. Oh God, uh, what a decision to make. Um, so we have to figure out what to do with that. So tentatively coming out this summer, maybe a little later, depending on how things go with the virus and Amazon, uh, which I don't work for or have any control over. And, uh, other than that, I guess people usually are interested or care to know that I, am I, I have a, a PhD and my doctorate is in mathematics, but I have not been involved in the university since 2010. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a wandering bio, I suppose. Okay. That, that was a fantastic introduction. Um, and I'm just going to say a few things that, uh, I know that would be harder for you to say yourself just because it would be valuable for the conversation, just so that everyone is clear um, yeah, so James does have a doctorate in mathematics, uh, but in order to carry out the Sokol Squared project, um, which was sort of almost like a, an external audit of a number of different disciplines, um, primarily in the humanities, uh, where they submitted these, um, I guess, uh, falsely crafted uh, papers um, that were in line with <clears throat> the teachings uh, of theory and included their vocabulary and so forth, and were able to get them a, a number of these papers approved in their peer-reviewed journals, um, the less less scrupulous ones. Um, and so I just wanted to be clear because in order to properly do this and what has prepared him for the project over at New Discourses, James actually had to become an expert in a number of these different areas. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of academic disciplines that you went into and that you're sort of um, exposing or mapping out on new discourses in terms of the um, the fields where you're you're bringing in this um, this lexicon, the social justice lexicon. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll kind of walk people through how I got into it to kind of give you a sense of how uh, of, of what it is. So when I started looking at this so that we could write the the so-called hoax papers, the, the bogus papers we submitted, we were targeting gender studies. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives you a place to lock your teeth, you know, and say, well, what is it exactly that you guys are talking about? Well, it, it started with gender studies. And then we realized that whatever it is that's called gender studies, there's a lot of other things out there that are like gender studies uh, that kind of fit into a similar picture under the same umbrella, if you will. And those study race, they study sexuality, they study obesity, but not in a medical sense. They actually refuse to call it obesity. They call it fat um, and they call it fat studies. They study disability. They study all these factors of identity. Mm -hmm. So on some some sense, you could call it uh, on some level, you could call it um, identity studies, but nobody does. Uh, they tend to call it cultural studies. Um and that makes sense because they're actually very interested in the way that culture uh, is defined by these various identity features and very interested in seeing how culture interacts with it, various cultures interact with one another. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like if you took all the science out of sociology and took all the science out of anthropology or cultural anthropology and um, looked at it only in a theoretical 
manner and talked about cultural issues pretty much all the time. Uh, that's sort of, of the the picture of what it is that we ended up calling grievance studies. Uh, and so that's why it ended up being called the grievance studies affair. So it was gender studies and things like gender studies uh, that fall into a category in, in the academy called uh, the theoretical humanities. Mm. Um, they have the roots in uh, various, you know, philosophical traditions. The postmodern tradition is one that's very relevant. The, you know, so the French philosophers like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and Jean-Francois Lyotard. Um, and then you have, uh, there are roots in kind of what was known as, as liberation philosophy or liberationism, mm. which ultimately came out of the the Frankfurt School, the new left, if you will, following Herbert Marcuse. Um, so that's kind of radical activism. The, so, all the radicalism that you saw like in the 60s, that was that. Was that. Um, so this is kind of like the legacy of that as it turned very academic um, ever since. So that's sort of the thing. And I call it critical social justice now to kind of capture the majority of its true commitments. Yeah. And there's a, there's this other component. I mean, so you mentioned the postmodern school, um, which is, you know, like Derrida and, and playing around with language and the way in which language uh, carries power and implicit meaning and so forth. Um, but there's also this, uh, this transfiguration from the Marxist school where they took the dynamics of class conflict and turn those into identity conflict. Is that would that be a, a proper assessment as well? Yeah, as a matter of fact, the the radical side of this, or in fact the critical side. When I say critical social justice, it's meaning using a critical approach to social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, the the critical side is pretty deeply rooted in exactly what you're talking about, the so-called neo-Marxist tradition that arose uh, in the Frankfurt School uh, in the originally the 1920s and 30s and I guess it technically still sort of exists, um, but really kind of hit its its peak of relevance in the in the fifties through the the seventies, and that uh, that approach is rooted in conflict theory, which is also you know what what Marxism is rooted in, and so the the class conflict being you know Marx's view where it was all about economic class being switching that over to uh, features of identity, so which sometimes gets called cultural Marxism or sometimes gets called neo-Marxism, is sort of the thing. And if you want, we can kind of dive into how and why that happened um, kind of over several decades, starting in the 20s and really hitting a peak by probably the 60s uh, before it got picked up and and shifted around and took up social justice agendas and so on later. I I would be interested in what your what your brief synopsis is of of why that transition happens, because I have my own theory based on other other versions of history I've heard. But I I would be one wondering what you what you think happened. You mean the shift from economics to identity? Um, Yeah. Or or from. Yeah. From a class base to identity base. So I think it actually took took place in a couple of stages. Um, originally, so I, the history to the best that I know it and history is not my strength. So I'm not going to, going to claim to be an expert in this aspect. The history of the Frankfurt school, uh, rests pretty heavily on, on, uh, Georg Lukács and Lukács was a communist. He tried to pull off a communist revolution in Hungary Mm -hmm. and it didn't work. And it didn't take. And then 
that ended up, Lukács left from that experience and then went to Germany, to Frankfurt, in fact, and in hooking up with, with some other people like Walter Benjamin and eventually uh, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, they founded the Institute for Social Research, which uh, is the Frankfurt School, as it's better known. And so what they wanted to do was to figure out why those, why that revolution, why, why don't they work? Why isn't the communist revolution that Marx predicted happening anywhere. Mm. I think the Bolshevik revolution is like the only example where it kind of happened. And they tried, of course, like in Hungary and it didn't work. And so what they started to do was to analyze culture to try to figure out what's going on. And as a matter of fact, they tried to take Freudian psychoanalysis and tie it into Marx, Marxist theory. That was like the original goal of their project to explain why people were, were voting against their own interests and so on. Mm-hmm. And they concluded that it was cultural forces, cultural factors. In fact, the, um, the ability of the state to have started producing kind of a middle class and a popular culture and to take on elements of socialism without going all the way into socialism uh, was, was... I'm sorry, James, you broke up there. Any longer the idea that the capitalists were brainwashed. Oh, sorry, where did I break up? Um, before you said any idea that the capitalists were brainwashed. That's okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the idea would have been that, that before under, under Marxist thought was that the capitalists, the the big capitalist class was brainwashing everybody. Mm. And what happened was that they switched to believing that it was actually the, the ideologies that the, the groups in power, the, the politically elite were producing were, were giving people the sense that they wanted to participate in that culture. So there would be this idea of, you know, maybe German culture or whatever that was being put out by the the German elites. And that those were the dominant ideologies of how you should be a good German and a good European and a good, and people were buying into that because kind of some stuff was working and people kind of liked it. Uh, popular culture was a lot to do with it. And so they got very critical of that and wanted to show that that was actually leading people to work against their own interests. Now, that's a long way from getting it to be about identity, which really started to blossom, if I understand right, in the Frankfurt School thought. This is where Marcuse becomes more relevant post-World War II. Mm-hmm. So after World War II, uh, that's where you start to see the developments that started to lead into the new left. So World War II ended, and with it, um, it's not a typical way to think of history, uh, of history um, but World War II, in a sense, is really the end of empire in the West. The idea that, you know, the goal of the Germans was to create an empire. Well, you had decolonialism. I mean, that's what that is. Exactly. And so in the early 1950s, you had writers like Franz Fanon, uh, is a f- French psychotherapist, I believe, that was writing about the colonial context. Empire was retreating all over the world. World War II, in one sense, can be understood as the West's final repudiation of empire in the in the traditional sense that we're going to go conquer territory and make it ours. Um, whether you want to talk about economic empire or whatever else, it's another it's another matter. But uh, in terms of like literal empire, the West left that behind with World War II. So you have this completely different thing happening there where all of a sudden the colonial context becomes very interesting to kind of all of the thought that was going on in these sort of sociological-ish circles and social theory circles. And so what the most obvious thing is 
there is that the colonial context had a clash of cultures. And we even use phrases like culture shock and so on when we go somewhere that has a totally different culture. And so the idea that culture was tied up in who you are, whether that's through national identity or whatever, became much more relevant. And so you started to see these kind of movements coming up very much in Europe that were were based against colonialism. You know, when they sparked up in America, they were very much like black nationalism and black liberationism. And so you saw a lot of that this diving into black identity, what would uh, later be described by um, the post-colonial theorist Gatry Spivak as, as strategic essentialism in a sense, which is taking on a marginalized identity and all of the essentialism that goes with that as a matter as a means of doing political uh, activism for yourself. So it's kind of like when people say identity politics, they mean a lot of things, but that's where the, the, the meaning of, you know, when you can think of identity politics, like, well, we're going to do politics that's relevant to identity. It's a very soft, very understanding of the concept. Mm -hmm. A harder understanding of the concept would be, um, we're going to advocate based on this identity group, you know, in, in its interests as if they are a special interest group in particular. And so it's a very different kind of mentality. It's it's uh, Martin Luther King minus a handful of his writings. So the big theme Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X uh, or the, any of the kind of black liberation stuff where, you know, I am black is is, is kind of the, the core thing of black power, mm -hmm. black identity. So that's really where identity, because of the, the, the post-colonial context primarily in Europe and then the civil rights era struggles primarily in America uh, through the end of the 1950s going into the 1960s, that's where a lot of the critical study was happening in that, you know, post-World War II era, again, spearheaded heavily by Herbert Marcuse. And so that really marked the switch when people said, well, the things that the dominant interests in society are based in culture. So it went from economics to culture. And then after World War II, it shifted. And well, what's relevant in culture is is identity, like racial identity. And then, of course, you had same time. You have feminism. You know, you have uh, Simone de Beauvoir in 1949 was the second sex. Mm. Um, so you're talking right around that same time. Feminism, gender studies, women's stu women studies before gender studies, I should say started emerging and they were doing the same kind of thing with with female identity and then you started to see it coming up with gay identity and so this whole kind of concentration on on power being mediated through identity seems to have followed the that kind of huge i don't know if cultural awakening is it's probably actually the right way to describe it that happened in the in the 1960s primarily and going into the 70s and that's where it really got hitched to identity, not just culture. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why, I mean, we've alluded a couple of times to making this encyclopedia of social justice terminology on new discourses. And there's a reason that it's like, I've really avoided doing cultural Marxism so far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's because it's really a complicated idea. Uh, and it kind of applies now and kind of doesn't. And it means like six things at once, I, at least three frankly, but I right. think probably five or six. And so it's really a fraught term to have to work with. Uh, so that's, I think it's a much longer summary than you probably wanted, but I think that's how we got from uh, economic class to uh, demographic identity. Okay. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a few more stages to it. You have the liberation, the various liberation movements in the 1960s uh, with, you know, racial equality and gender equality and sexual liberation and so forth. Um, And the thing that I think is really different about that and the people who um, or I guess the, the groups and disciplines that have inherited that legacy or claim to have inherited that legacy and are speaking for um, on behalf of those issues uh, is that those were still being done in a very um, overtly liberal context. Right. At exactly. Time. And, and yeah, what that... we have, what we have now, I mean, um, like I said, we're going to have to skip a few steps to, to get all the way up to the present. Um, but there, there's another, I, I guess, big turn in the development of these um, disciplines right in the nineties when the Soviet union um, collapses. Yes. And, uh, and then obviously again, the most recent iterations, which uh, some people say started around 2014, other people trace it back further to like 2010 or 2008. Um, But these, um, these disciplines were left largely to their own devices inside of academic departments and, various ivory towers for quite a long time. Um, and the ideas were, were sort of allowed to develop in this, um, in this echo chamber of sorts. Uh, but, but more than that, the, they, they transformed. So they evolved over time, right? Like you originally started with the liberal context and it, the analogy that people draw a lot is that, um, much of the ideas in social justice mimic a, uh, a religion or they, they mimic a virus in certain ways that's being talked about now. Um, and I believe you even uh, found a paper not too long ago where there were some feminists who were actually claiming that their ideology was, in fact, a virus and that it was supposed to be parasitic. Um, yes. And, um, and so my point is that, like, these are memes, uh, these ideas, they, uh, they, they, they've gone through an evolutionary process, and mm-hmm. they have hosts and they have a certain... Um, presence uh, throughout the population and in various cultural institutions and so forth. But now, uh, and probably since 2014, we're really starting to see it, see these ideas break out of the academy and go into the corporate world and go into the business world and go into, you know, my little sister's elementary school. <laughs> and right. uh, it's starting to become a, a serious issue. And it's hard to get people to understand why. And I think part of the problem is this trap of language where they have all these words that uh mean something colloquially that don't mean what you think it means uh exactly in in terms of theory so you want to go into that a little bit and just throw out some terms that people might get confused by or tripped up on yeah um i'll actually let me start by kind of rounding out a little bit what you just said is an excellent summary um the more i keep looking at it the more i keep finding that what's been going on is, and, and again, my focus is mostly on, on left-wing cultural currents in in the past maybe hundred years now. Yeah, you're and not you're not a right-wing guy either. I just no, want everyone to know that. Not at all. Uh, everybody thinks I'm like some super right alt right something now, but no. Um, so what I've noticed is that there are kind of four major strands that you kind of have to keep your eye on, and three of them were relevant until you know the '90s maybe. Um, everywhere I look, you see the same kind of pattern is that you have like the liberal activists, the people that are, that are fighting for this kind of like change in society in a liberal way. You have the, the radicals, and then you have what go by a variety of different names. Sometimes they're, they're called socialists. Sometimes they're Marxists. Sometimes they're, they are uh, materialist, mm-hmm. but you have these 
that's kind of its own camp that will I generally refer to as materialist to kind of be simple. I mean, these things are complicated. We when we were writing cynical theories, we were trying to write a chapter about feminism and gender studies. And Helen being Helen, uh, for those of your listeners who know how Helen is, it makes sense and it's too much to explain otherwise. At first sent me this draft and had traced something like, you know, 11 different branches, significant branches of feminism out of like 26 that she had identified. I mean, there's these people, there's a bunch of similar things. And we finally decided to simplify it down to four. And up until the 90s, there were just three, which are are the liberals, the radicals and the materialists. And so the materialists are mostly looking at how in a feminist context, they would be looking at how. Um, patriarchy is is in capitalism are basically the same thing. And then the radicals are just going to be all out against patriarchy and as kind of like a, a strong ideological social force. And that's sort of your um, kind of new left approach, although you kind of get some of that from uh, in the, ra- uh, the materialists as well. And then you had the liberals who were the ones on the ground doing most of the effective change that actually happened. Uh, they very successfully, in fact, used the insanity of the radicals as uh, a means to reach mass culture by saying we're not as crazy as those people. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're actually asking for something reasonable. And then in the 90s, what happened was there was some weird fusion uh, between the radicals and the postmodern theory that was kind of often left field in in the academy up to that point. And that's where the intersectionals were were introduced. So that's kind of your fourth branch is the intersectionals. And they're new. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like since we're talking in the context of a pandemic, I mean, that's where like the virus like jumped species or something. That's where something massive changed. Um, so something very significant is, is like little evolution, little evol- evolution, 1990s, you have this mutation that created intersectional. It's totally, it, it draws upon the, the thought, the earlier thought that's socialist or radical and also postmodern, but it's also distinct from them in its own kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's not liberal. It's certainly not liberal. And so now you kind of have the liberals have kind of lost a lot of ground. The Marxists or socialists or materialists are still doing their thing, especially in postcolonial theory. There's a lot of that kind of scholarship. It's more or less dead in race theory. It's present somewhat in feminism, but not very much. Uh, the the radical branches in feminism are still alive. They're at war with the intersectionals, but nobody listens to them anymore. Um, <laughs> the Camille and so, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have these different branches, but what we have now is an overwhelming dominance, both in scholarship and in activism of the intersectional branch. Right, and this so, one school. This one school of thought has absolutely it's like the mutation that it underwent gave it like superpowers of bullying everybody else's voice off the table. And you're right that they were able to develop in these kind of these these echo chambers is good because they they, is a good way to put it because they they weren't being held to account or challenged by anybody outside. They were kind of given you know, money and allowed to basically exist and do things without anybody really paying them any attention. And so they went really far down their own rabbit holes. Uh, and as you pointed out kind of more relevantly, what part of how they've been able to do this is through uh, an absolutely amazing, amazingly skillful um, manipulation of language. Uh, I think this mostly comes from the postmodern aspect that they adopted in the 90s. Although you certainly see hints of it earlier. Um 
But really influential in this thinking would have been, you know, people like Judith Butler and her misunderstanding of uh, of Derrida and Austin and all of the people that she drew on. So she had this idea of performativity that, you know, gender is created just by the sort of performative acts and speech acts. And is this and where all the acts. emotional labor comes from? Um. Yeah, sort of. Uh, okay. Emotional labor is a complicated concept in and of itself because <laughs> emotional labor is real. It's like yeah, a thing course. that people have to do. Like yeah, if yeah. you have to go to work and be happy all the time because, say, you work at like Disney or something like that. I I've had a job where you had to smile and it's terrible. It's hard. It's really hard. You have to, you know, whatever the, the emotional uh, valence is that you have to put off or that like working in even just retail and not flipping out on annoying customers mm -hmm. like you have to keep that like level head and that's all i mean that's a real form of, of labor and it's good that somebody's theorizing it but then it's like these these people the the intersectional theorists if we will have extended that concept into you know doing the emotional labor of simply being right a or being a good friend yeah being a good friend being a black person that takes emotional work because life is hard and it's always you have to do all this stuff and you can't be an angry black person i mean they've got all this this stuff rooted in it um so that is a manipulation of language that they've taken this concept emotional labor and then appropriated it to their own ends and that's sort of what you see a lot of they have their specialized jargony language like epistemic injustice and all of this that means something specific but they also have this tendency to take words we all know like racist or social justice or um, diversity or something like that and then kind of twist it around so that it means what they want it to mean without kind of ever telling people that they've done it and so so i, I want to um, hold you to that claim real quickly um just sure. i want i want you to bring up some exam like out of those that you mentioned one example that is salient so one of the questions, and, and I'm, I'm tying this in with a, with a question at the same time, I guess. Um, how is their definition of diversity different than the, um, I guess, non-critically uh, educated person or, or person who hasn't sure. studied this definition of diversity? And also, uh, as a second question, follow up on that, why, why is it that... Um, somehow diversity inclusion and equity as the three sort of pillar values have all somehow been decided upon seemingly by consensus as the three most important values for every institution okay um before so i will do diversity let me do since it's really obvious uh and i can actually cite straight out of their literature where it's being done let me start with racism and then i'll move to diversity to sure. give you a, a clear vision of what's happening so in robin d'angelo's book white fragility which yes. was bestseller big time 2018 book but i mean i could list her other books as well because she does have other books is uh everyone really equal is a book for educators that she wrote in 2012 uh with a co-author there's another book she had i forget what year 2015 or 16 something that's something like what does it mean to be white yeah so um, let's let's get into white fragility because that's a kafka trap that we can explore a little bit Right. So right in that book, she actually takes a significant chunk of a chapter fairly early on to explain 
that she's not talking about racism. She says, you know, if you're basically if you're a white person, you're racist. And then she says a lot of people are going to be getting upset right now. And I don't mean racist the way you probably think I do. I mean, racist the other this other way. I mean, in terms of there's a system of of uh, inequality that creates different outcomes for black people or people of minority races, in particular black people, and that by doing anything except constantly and appropriately fighting that system, you are actually upholding it. That's the theory is that it's basically that either you're fighting it or you're complicit in it. That's their kind of zero sum uh, activist mentality that they have. Uh, silence is complicity is a phrase you've probably heard around that. And so she says, I actually mean this more abstract systemic thing. So when I say you're a racist, I'm not saying that you have done personal anim animosity against somebody or prejudice against somebody because of their race. I'm saying you're actually participating in this, you know, I'll add the word abstruse system of racism that exists. And so it's not something you should be totally upset about. She even says, breathe and relax. It's not your fault. You were born messed up. <laughs> Right. And then she just goes throughout the rest of the book and says that white people hold up racism, white people hold up racism. And the thing is, is like mentioning in the chapter. So I, Robin D'Angelo does say that she means something different by racism. I actually like Robin D'Angelo's work a lot because she makes my job really easy because she over and over again says, I mean something different than you mean. She has a book where is everyone really equal? She talks about she uh, critical social justice and she's like, we don't mean social justice like normal people mean it. We mean this specific thing that's different. And then she says this with racism also. But the thing is, is a lot of people go and read something like White Fragility, and they're not going to quote that disclaimer every single time. They're just going to start calling white people racist. And so when you hear racist or I hear racist, we think one thing. We think, you know, prejudice based on 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 race, yeah. uh, thinking another race is inferior or something like that. And that's not what they mean. Um, they mean like really subtle stuff by saying thinking another race is inferior because that implies that I think white is default, which isn't at all what I meant in the context, of course. They mean stuff like that. And so it's um, absolutely a different thing. And they are content to let that emotional resonance do a lot of work for them. So with white fragility, that's in fact basically you call it a Kafka trap. That's right. It's it's that's basically how that whole game is played. They know people are going to react emotionally to being accused of being racist or white supremacist. And then when they react emotionally, white fragility says that they're showing white fragility, that, 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 which is a form of exposing the fact that they actually have white privilege and that they've never had to reckon with race realistically. And so the idea of white fragility is that if you if, if I were to call you racist and say that you uphold white supremacy, you have a number of things you could do to react. You could say, oh man, you're right. What can I do to change myself? Right. That's one reaction. That's the only way out, by the way. And then and it's not you, even really a way out, but I'll right, get to that now later. you've said that you're a racist and a white supremacist. Um, so if you say, well, I don't think that's right. You disagree, right? Well, that's mm -hmm. you being too fragile to be honest with yourself. If you get upset, that's you being emotional because you are too comfortable with your, your white privilege and not used to being accused of these things. In other words, that you have white privilege and you're upholding white supremacy and you're a racist. If you stay silent, that's you refusing to engage with it honestly because you're not, you don't have enough racial stamina to do so. If you get upset, same thing. So the idea is that in calling it a Kafka trap, 
they've set up the idea where they use this this different definition of racism, this different definition, this highly specific, unrecognizable definition of racism and white supremacy. Then they accuse people of it. And then when people get upset, they say that them being upset is proof that they're part of the problem that they're talking about. So um, getting upset about being called a racist is part of being a racist in their definition of racism, which just doesn't make any sense. Um, so the, that idea has shocking currency in our culture right now. I, I hear about it all the time. I was just talking with some people the other day uh, who who are a, a group of teachers mm-hmm. who, because of the, the stay-at-home order and the closed schools, are doing like teacher book clubs and they're reading white fragility right now. And the next oh one up, God. the next one up is, is something by, <sighs> by the critical race theorist, Daryl wing Sue, who is, uh, just, just the same. It's just the same. It's, it, it, you know, they're reading Barbara Applebaum, who is famous for having written a book that implies that, uh, all white people are automatically complicit with, with racism and white supremacy, unless they're taking active anti-racist strides at all times, according to their standards. So there's this whole like different understanding of, of concepts, racism, white supremacy. And if you, um, don't agree with that, you're, you're in some way trying to maintain your privilege. Like you're, you're, um, showing your white fragility you're trying to white maintain white comfort you're uh you're afraid you're going to lose white equilibrium yeah you know there's a lot of these different concepts concepts you're engaging with what one theorist allison bailey called privilege preserving epistemic pushback in other words you're only arguing back in order to preserve your privilege right um because you want to protect that and that's literally the mindset behind this 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 critical social justice so when they think about diversity since that's the one you asked me about specifically um Diversity kind of means what we all think of it. So when you when you hear the word diversity, when I use the word diversity, we tend to think it means, you know, that there's a collection of difference, right? There's yeah, different a, a people. heterogeneous group. Yes, exactly. And so um, they mean that, too, in a very superficial way, except that uh, they actually mean it primarily in terms of what's sometimes called cultural knowledges or racial knowledges or something like that, that what, what they actually mean is that they want a variety of different voices who are speaking authentically from different, say racial or identity perspectives, uh, but who all are doing so from the perspective of having a critical consciousness about them. So in other words, what they mean is they want, critical social justice theorists of different races. So Mm -hmm. they want when somebody's going to be the, like the black representative, that person's supposed to speak about the authentic black experience, which means they have to speak in order for it to qualify as authentic from the critical race perspective. Otherwise it doesn't count. And then because white people would be considered racially dominant or men would be considered sexually dominant, straight people would be sexuality dominant. um, Those voices actually aren't necessary to be included that they're not really part of diversity because everybody's already awash in those ideologies. Yeah. So you, would just, you would just be expanding the existing power structure. Exactly. So what they think is that the different identity groups among people in different identity groups, I'm sorry, who have critical consciousness that they have a, a unique and excluded or oppressed 
or marginalized perspective. And by diversity, what they mean is including those diverse perspectives, which aren't diverse at all because they all just spout critical theory about identity. So it's it, that one's hard to explain. That's why I wanted to do the easier one of racism first. Yeah. Um, because that's a little more subtle, but they don't mean diversity like let's just get a bunch of different people together with different perspectives. In fact, they don't want people who have different perspectives in the sense that we normally mean different perspectives. They want people who have different aspects of the same perspective. They want a black critical theorist who has the black critical theory perspective. They want a black or they want a they want a queer critical theorist who has the queer critical theory perspective. They want a female critical theorist who has the female critical perspective. So you kind of, you see what I'm saying? They, they want different aspects of the same perspective. And they think that those are intrinsically tied to identity groups because it's impossible. And this isn't, you know, like, I'm not saying that this is just out of left field that they made this up. They think that the experience of being oppressed as that kind of person, the lived experience of that is the only way you can actually understand it. Yeah. Uh, a so, black person could not tell a white person what racism is like and the white person understand it. Therefore, you have to have a black representative who speaks from a critical perspective in order to have a truly diverse voice. So yeah, they're di this, that's the, hard. Ab the absence of like a, a, a theory of mind across different groups is a really interesting component of this with the um, standpoint of epistemology. It's, it's almost like a new Gnosticism. It is. It's very much identity-based Gnosticism. The idea is that the experience either of oppression or of day-to-day -day life as a such-and-such, -such, you know, whether it's woman or lesbian or whatever it happens to be, black woman, something, the experience of life as that person, even if it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with power, um, for example, you could make an argument, I suppose, that uh, just to I know this is kind of really out in left field, but a black woman, of course, her skin coloration is probably going to make it feel different to be in the sun than a white person. So a black woman on her period, so that you make sure that the woman parts relevant is going to have a unique experience of day-to-day -day life that has nothing to do with oppression. It's just, you don't know what it's like to be a black woman out in the sun on your period, something like that. Um, <laughs> that's called perspectivalism actually. And so the, the, their point is that those things really strongly matter and they give you special insight and um, with standpoint epistemology in particular, they give you insight into the nature of dominance and oppression of the social forces that are involved. And so it's always going to go back to that. It's always going to go back because that's what they always want to talk about is the social forces involved. Um, so it's always going to come back to the idea that, you know, you don't know what it's like to be oppressed as a whatever. Um, and we have special insight. And then they have, when you say that there's this kind of lack of theory of mind, yeah, because everybody who disagrees with them has to have some kind of false consciousness, mm -hmm. right? It's internalized racism, internalized misogyny, internalized oppression. And if you're, if you're a dominant group member and don't think that critical theory is the right way, you have internalized dominance. I mean, it's, you, you either agree with them or you have no psychological agency because the ideologies of society have brainwashed you. Yeah. Which, that's actually a really interesting point that if you if you really buy into this stuff, you're the one who thinks everyone else must be brainwashed, which might be a good sign that you've maybe bought into a cult. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's a really good sign that you've been been taken in by a cult for sure. As for why diversity, equity and inclusion have kind of been so effective at 
having been mainstreamed. I'm not wholly sure. There is a reason that diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, were institutionalized. They didn't come out of nowhere, okay. right? So in 2003, if I'm not mistaken, there was a Supreme Court case, um, something versus Grutter or something like that. I'd have to think of what it was. Sullivan versus Grutter or something like this. There's a. I can look it up and we can we can Is I can it email it to Bollinger you and you can put it in the v. notes. Grutter. Yes. That yes. Yes. That's case? it. Bollinger versus. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yes. Bollinger, not Sullivan. I just had the like double L in my head, and then Bollinger doesn't even have a double L as one L. But here we are. <laughs> um, the vagaries of memory. Uh, at any rate, there was a Supreme Court case in 2003, Bollinger versus Grutter, and the the conclusion, the, the point of that had something to do with, with affirmative action, and they decided that affirmative action wasn't appropriate in, in higher ed. Mm-hmm. And one of the dissenting opinions, uh, you know, as they, they do with Supreme Court cases, said that, well, if the colleges and universities want to push similar agendas under a rubric of increasing diversity and inclusion, they're welcome to do that. And that sort of is the mark where all of a sudden this stuff that had been bubbling up, uh, you know, there was already research into social diversity, already concern about inclusion of diverse groups uh, going on. And then there was already social equity theory goes back, I think, started being talked about in the 60s, but it really got a big leg up in the 80s as a lot of these things did. So those things all of a sudden had a institutional application they could be the way that affirmative action was institution institutionalized in higher education um, when in- those had been struck down and kind of echoing that this year already. I mean, yeah. it's only it's only March this year. You had this thing going on in the state of Washington mm-hmm. um, where the voters, I think, in the last election voted against something to do with affirmative action in the state of Washington entirely. And so the governor set up an equity task force for the state legislature that's goal is to put equity in. Since we can't have affirmative action, we'll have equity. Oh. And the, the uh, mm-hmm. equity task force actually was approved by the state legislature and signed uh, into you know, official capacity by the governor a little while ago, uh, a couple before the before Seattle was basically ground zero for coronavirus. Um so you have the same the same thing going on in the early 2000s. The affirmative action was kind of the institutional uh, equity game in town. It got struck down out of higher ed, and then they were specifically told, "Well, if you do this in the name of diversity and inclusion, and I guess apparently equity, then that's okay." And so diversity, equity, and inclusion became the thing to institutionalize. So that's why you have all these offices of diversity and inclusion came into being. All these higher all these places of higher ed. And of course, that model just started to replicate. So now your HR department has to have one. Now the city of Chicago has one. Now the state of Washington has one. Now, in fact, as of a couple of weeks ago or just a week ago, time is so weird under coronavirus, um, the United States Congress has an (laughs) office of diversity and inclusion now, too. Oh, fantastic. Um, So this has replicated because it was a successful model to put it, it, it was an allowable model that got around a strike down from the court or gets away from, you know, being voted out by a referendum vote by the people or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a backdoor method. And once it started to be institutionalized, the institutionalizing model just replicated itself. Yeah. It's, 
so it's a, it's a virus, if you will, and it replicates and what works goes. It continues and expands. It, it replicates it because it convinces its uh, its holders that their number one duty in life, their literal moral obligation is to perpetuate it, right? Correct. Um, and the other thing too, the other way in which it's it's like a virus is that it it um, it it basically parasitizes any institution that it comes into contact with. So right, that, that's something people don't really understand very well is that it, it latches on to institutions and then it it's very <laughs> the, the the metaphor to a virus is so so striking. Um, it drains its resources. Prob- it's like <laughs> well, it's probably why they wrote a paper about it. it like can't we are a virus. So I look at like, for example, I don't know how many, I don't know if you know this, I don't know how many of your your listeners would know this, but the truth is that um, this is all up in, say, American Buddhism. So like the American Soto Zen Buddhist Association, I think is what it's called. I've been hearing it sneaking into yoga studios. Oh, it's every, it's in everything. Well, in Buddhism in particular, I'm aware of what it's, one of the things that it does is it comes in and it uses the actual language of of Buddhism, mm-hmm. the, the concepts of Buddhism like, oh, and resistance just, just reappropriates them into the terms of uh, into meaning social justice stuff. Mm-hmm. So here you have that slippery language game again, right? So we're going to change what diversity means because we can do diversity programs and we're really going to mean by that affirmative action for our people, meaning critical theorists, not particular races. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they kind of just modify what they mean by the thing. Well, you come into Buddhism and all of a sudden they have these different, you know, noble truths and all of these different, you know, practices. I don't know the, the Buddhist practice names and I don't want to say things wrong, so I won't name anything specific. But then they say, well, well, the real point of that is, you know, this kind of social justice thing. I just saw I just tweeted literally right before we got on this like an hour ago. Mm-hmm. Um I tweeted about as an article that came out just a little while ago in Wired, which last I checked was about computers and stuff like tech. No, it's talking about how the flatten the curve objective with coronavirus is actually a social justice project. I was hoping to get to this. <laughs> they literally just take crap and appropriate it to themselves. Before, before we re- before we recorded this episode, I was going to ask you if you were expecting there to be uh intersectional and social justice takes on even the the you know the global pandemic everything and of course there are of course there are of course there were it's really funny because you're not the first person who's asked me this a little over a week ago a lot of people know who andrew doyle is andrew Mm -hmm. and i are friends got to be friends last october and we we chat sometimes and so he was he's he's the the comedian behind titania mcgrath Mm -hmm. on the twitter account the satire account on on twitter very funny so he said he was writing an article asked to Tanya about critical social justice takes about the coronavirus and if I had any guesses about what they would say. And I gave him like 70 predictions. Or I mean, it's just ridiculous how many I just started writing. And um, Well, it's, so just like, so, it's just so easy. Once you know the framework, it's so you easy. just go around and, and it's like plug and play on, any, and on anything. It's like – it's almost like I could make a bingo card out of the damn things because they're just happening now. It's like I said that there was going to be one of the takes would be that um, trans people would come out and say that paying attention to sick COVID-19 patients would uh, be prioritizing their care over not sick trans people. And then like there was an article in Vice, I think, not that long afterwards saying that – uh 
it was transphobic to label trans uh, transition surgeries as non-essential during the virus pandemic. Oh God. Um, I was like, Oh my God, you know, it's like I nailed it. And then I did not predict flatten the curve as a social justice issue. I did predict, however, that social distancing would be considered uh, something that is a uh, privilege. It requires privilege to be able to social distance. I predicted that there would be an article coming out. And that I think I saw one a couple of days ago talking about how, um, white businesses or, or white owned businesses, I should say, are, are because of white privilege, they can close down more easily than, uh, say restaurants owned by people of color. Well, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is that like this, this disaster is going to have a disparate impact because, so under, because yes. Yeah. Under equity, uh, all outcomes need to be the same among groups. And so all you need to do is just start looking for, the people who are going to be the most vulnerable to this and just right. talking about it in those terms. And so this is exactly why it's a mutation and not Mar a mutation away from Marxism and not Marxism. And this is why the Marxists are so pissed off at these people because it's overwhelmingly obvious that the relevant variables, the relevant social stratification is economic. Mm. This overwhelmingly the most relevant variable like people with the fewest economic resources are going to be hit the hardest by something that has massive economic consequences it's like no shit sherlock uh and then no 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 when you said you know equity has to be across groups they've shifted this it's no longer even equity across economic groups which would be a marxist type argument or socialist argument it's now equity across identity groups so they conflate the they say oh well black people are poorer than white people are on average mm -hmm. and the reason must be because of systemic racism and it's like it's so tendentious and so these you know there's i read one of these articles um written on i don't know if you know about the world socialist website i like those guys they really like us uh, I've, I've, I've seen you talking about their, their well they went before. after the 1619 project in the new york times yeah. harder than anybody and earlier than anybody really and so, every... I mean, a couple of historians had come out but then they really went for it okay and so one of the articles they wrote about the 1619 project they wrote that the Marxist slogan is supposed to be workers of the world unite, not races of the world divide. And I was like, that's so good. Um, but the Marxists hate these people because it's so obvious that they're uh, manipulating off of what are economic issues and where you should have economic solidarity across class and trying to turn it into a racial identity issue, mostly because the people doing this are pretty bougie, as they say, upper middle class uh, people, like a lot of the post-colonial theorists, for example, it has been noted that a very high proportion of the post-colonial theorists out there are former, they're Indian, they're former residents of India who are from the upper caste. Right. And it's like, so they're, they were at the cream of the crop top privilege of their society, their Brahma class. Right. And then they, they come to the West and they're like, I'm a poor Brown person, boo hoo. And then they, it's like, holy shit. You know, it's like, what are you doing? And so a lot of these people are upper middle class. They're not all, some of them come from poor backgrounds, but a lot of them come from seriously economically well-off classes. And then they try to to milk the, the situation so that they get to fall into the oppressor class mm -hmm. because granted, you know, 50, 70 years ago, 50, even 30, really, even they would have been massively uh, disadvantaged because of their skin color or their, their uh, sexual identity or whatever. But um, 
the Marxists are super pissed about that because they're trying to to conflate what are best understood as economic issues with group identity issues as though, you know, Oprah Winfrey and, you know, some, you know, just everyday black Joe trying to make it, you know, it's struggling are in this like the same category in some very meaningful and significant way in 2020. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 the people that are doing that that are coming from a place of privilege are, are just completely shameless. They're um, grifters. I mean, yeah. they in, in the most general, and, and they know, tend to be, genuine sense of the word. It's the kind of thing that you wouldn't do if you were competent at doing something else. <laughs> um, uh, That's be, a thing too. Yeah, <laughs> you want to talk about it, they actually, they even write that in their literature. They're like, oh well, I you know this critical such and such studies was founded by a collective of people who are, who tried to bring critical methods to they basically they talk about you know oh we worked in the industry of question and we weren't really able to make our business succeed and blah 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 and it's because structural forces were holding us down i remember reading that in like the critical dietetics book i had that's like that's not l ron hubbard scientology i know that there's lots of parallels here but that's dietetics is dietitians it's what they study yeah and so um I, i was asked to review a critical dietetics book and they're literally talking about it's like how they were trying to bring in like all these weird you know, like herbal practices and stuff. And they're like, Oh, and our business didn't succeed. And that's because people hate indigenous knowledge. And it's like, or because they wanted to go to a dietitian, not somebody who's trying to feed them tree bark. Um, right. So it's, it's self-defeating and in that it becomes self-fulfilling. And and, and then, yeah. And because it's empowered complaining, well, it's I victimhood couldn't make it in this as an identity, is, right? Exactly. It is victimhood as an identity. Uh, I was actually just talking about that in another context. You see this as kind of like empowered victim mentality. The, somebody uh, had something bad happen to them, and then it's like their therapist told them they, it's like one kind of like uncomfortable thing happened, and then they're like, oh, you have PTSD now. And so, and it's like, and PTSD is for life. That's the explanation. And it's like, mm. what? You know, well, it's because you have this empowerment in being having a victim status you get to tack on. It's like, you know, I went to college for 11 years and I can tack three letters after my name now, Ph.D. I guess I could put comma M.S. comma B.S. if I wanted to. Also, nobody does that, I don't think, but maybe M.S. But um, but I can put Ph.D. after my my name now. Mm. But it's like in this like victimhood currency, you can put like. You know, I could put like James Lindsay, comma PTSD, comma BPD, comma. You know, you well, can you'll you'll see it. You'll see it in people's um in Twitter bios. Oh, I know. You'll, you'll get like wait the till pronouns. they put it on their CV. You'll get like the pronouns, and then you'll get a list of their mental illnesses. Uh, and I remember one time I was in an argument with somebody, and I told them they were acting crazy, and then they tried to get all offended on me as if. I had gone and looked at their profile and seen that they were mentally ill and then called them crazy when really I was just calling them crazy because of how they were acting in the conversation. Yeah. Um, I mean, the crazy thing, why is would you really put it out there unless started. you're going to use it to defend your, your ridiculous tweets anyway? Well, the crazy thing is also where it started, right? In a, in a sense with the postmodern crap, cause that's really what Michel Foucault was about was the social construction of madness. Mm-hmm. So, and he had a point. He, he wasn't totally wrong. But he wasn't totally right either. It's not to say this is a huge point, by the way. When people say, oh, well, he has a point 
well, that doesn't make him, make him totally right. <laughs> you know, people can have a point and still be mostly wrong. I wish people would understand that. Yeah. Um, um so James, I did want to get a little bit into, um, the, um, I guess your mission that you stated at the beginning of this conversation, which is decreasing political polarization yeah. and how that's related to all the stuff that we've been talking about and how you think your project over at new discourses might be able to help with that. Um, so for, I'll, I'll just give you my, um, as an intro into this, uh, topic here, I'll, I'll just say that like, um, so one of the questions that I've been mulling over and I'd, I've been having a conversation with other people about is whether or not certain people need to be excluded from the conversation. That is whether or not, um, people who are, I'll just say brainwashed with these ideas are incapable of having a reasonable political dialogue and therefore shouldn't be talked to or whether we should just take the opposite approach, which is, I think what you're doing with new discourses, uh, which is try to attempt as much as possible to have the conversation and to explain to people what these ideas are and what they mean so that they can, uh, be better equipped to decide for themselves uh, whether or not, you know, they want to go along with this thing. What's your take on sort of counteracting this? Because I, I've just found that when you're interacting with people who are under the sway of these ideas, it's almost impossible to talk to them because they're totally uh, stuck within this frame. And you end up just getting tripped up arguing over either definitions or whether or not you're a racist or something like that. Uh, and it totally sidelines any, any hope of actually coming together. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. It is very difficult to to talk about these kinds of issues with. It's a very difficult period to talk with anybody who is deeply morally committed to any set of ideas, um, mm -hmm. especially if their identity gets tied up in that. That's where you'll hear the people come back with, "You're trying to erase my identity or whatever. You're you're questioning the the legitimacy of my existence and all this nonsense." Um, so I don't think we should exclude people from the conversation, though. No, I do. It, I will will recognize that it's very difficult to have productive dialogue in, in those situations. I think that, in fact, the biggest issue is, as you said, that it turns into these fights about definitions and all of this. And so that's really one of the big things I'm trying to do at New Discourses. That's why I'm created the 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 what I call translations from the wokish, which is a, is plain language sort of, um, social justice encyclopedia. So what I want to do with that and is, is like, I'm putting up different terms. Some of them are specific terms they use in their literature that kind of don't appear anywhere else, like privilege, preserving epistemic pushback. But a lot of them are just everyday words like racism or anti-racism or authenticity or uh, engagement and critical social justice. And I want to explain those terms as I under as best as I understand the way that they are understood within that mindset. But I also want to do so in a way which doesn't really exist out in the world almost anywhere that isn't using the terms, and believing in them at the same time. So I want people to be able to understand them in the way that they are intended while also providing, you know, enough outsider criticism or commentary or perspective to, to make it clear that you can understand these concepts without taking them on. Mm. So, so are, are my you... thought is oh, rather than excluding people from dialogue, mm -hmm. it's that 
the way that we solve these problems is because then it just becomes a fight over who gets excluded and why, and it becomes oh, sure. a power struggle. And that's the whole postmodern thing. That's the belief that dialogue is determined by whoever the most powerful are. And so that feeds into the problem, actually. So my, my view is that we should actually be trying to understand one another more clearly. Uh, so I want people to be able to take these, you know, entries on the encyclopedia if they end up in one of these conversations you're talking about and be able to say, you know, this this, you know, idea of racism or this idea of social justice, this is this is what we're actually discussing. And here's what it means. Here's somebody that, that me who has done the homework, understood your term correctly and doesn't agree with how you're using it. And what do you what do, where do we go from here? So the more we can get people to understand how that language is being used, the more we can get people having conversations around these terms on the same page the more productively we can start to take take care of this, which it means, and I didn't just say fight this thing or knock it down because it's not that. There are valid points being made by lunatics and we should be able to find the, instead of just dismissing the whole thing, throwing the baby out with the bathwater as it, as it were, we should be able to find those, we should be able to improve our understanding of one another so that we can find those legitimate points and then choose effective methods to deal with them rather than taking on this whole boatload of uh, basically false consciousness, psychoanalytic theory, pro you know, projection, whatever it is that they, it's like these people say that you can't disagree honestly. Like, no, we're not getting anywhere with that. Let's understand one another. Let's not exclude anybody from the conversation. But we're going to try to talk on terms that, that we can all understand one another on. So that's sort of the mission with, with that. Yeah, so... There are obviously like lunatics um, really in every political movement. Um, and I don't want to make only the lunatics be a representative exponent of the group. Right. Uh, but there, there are certainly, I mean, there are certainly lots of very intelligent, very well-read, very articulate, very smart people who uh, buy into this stuff. Sure. And, Most of them are. Yeah. 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 And uh, in addition to that, I think there are also many, many people who, um, I, I I would say like very superficially believe in it, but haven't actually been introduced to the ideas very in depth at all. And That's and then there's perhaps even a larger cohort of people who profess to believe in it or are just sort of going along with it, uh, but don't really know. Like maybe they, I, I get the sense that the the um there's sort of a silent majority that when they hear these ideas and they confront them either in their workplace or their school or wherever uh, for the first time, they will maybe feel that there's something wrong going on, but they can't really quite identify it. And so it's hard for yep. them to stand up to it and to talk openly about disagreeing with it because they're afraid of being a bad person, basically, because that's what it's telling you you are if you don't agree. Well, exactly. And I mean, the idea is the branding around this thing is awesome. So I'll tell you, back in 2011, you know, I was involved in the atheist movement before I got into all this social justice stuff. And so back in 2011, Richard Dawkins did a big poll in Britain using Ipsos Mori, which is their biggest, I think their biggest polling entity. And it, it was about Christian belief in Britain and religious belief in Britain. And so it was a pretty sophisticated poll from what I understand or what I remember. And one of the points that was pretty big that was drawn out of it was that they asked what percentage of people claim to be Christian. And then in another question, they'd asked 
what percentage of people agreed with, you know, essentially that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the savior of the world or whatever. And it turns out there's a massive disparity between <laughs> the two. Very few people believe that Jesus Christ was literally the son of God. And very many people, relatively speaking, said that they were Christian. And the people who ended up in that gap, who mm -hmm. said that they were Christian, but then did not profess belief in the core Christian doctrine, were asked a follow-up question of why they call themselves Christian, and the overwhelming answer was because that's what it means to be a good person. Mm. And so there's, and the parallelism that, that we you just went through to, to a religion works too, right? So the pastor knows the the what he's teaching pretty well. The theologians know it really well. The pastor goes to seminary and learns it from the theologians. He knows it pretty well. And then you have the people in the church who, you know, they're reading the stuff and they're kind of into it and, you know, they're taking notes at church and all that. And they know it, you know, they're kind of into it, but they're maybe not like the pastor. And then you kind of have like the people who go to church every week and they're, you know, doing the thing. And then you have those people who kind of belong to the church and sometimes they show up and, but if you ask them, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is, is it, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. But their theology just isn't there. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, and if you were to ask them specific theological doctrine questions or they, they wouldn't be able to answer them or they might even think some of them are wrong. Yeah. They you think you're lying. Them, Right. Like literally you could have somebody who, who belongs to a church that, that signs up to the to the ransom theory of atonement, ask them about the ransom theory, have them say, no, I don't think that's right. But it's legitimately the view of their church or something like that, um, because they're just that that's sort of the kind of thing that, that you tend to see in in these kind of like moral tribal type movements, whether it's a religion, whether it's something that works kind of like a religion in politics instead. You have, you know, various levels of, of commitment, sophistication, levels of depth and everything else. And then there's always tied to belonging to this or going along with it is part of what it means to be a good person. And so that's sort of the thing that's happening here. Uh, and so a lot of people, not just on the left, but especially on the left politically, even well into the center and into the to the right, aren't engaging with these ideas in a clear way that they understand. And they hear, well, we need more diversity around here. And nobody wants to be the guy who's like, no, we don't. Let's make this place more white. Right. Because because even if it's like even if they just say, no, we don't. That's what's going to be heard, and they know that's what's going to be heard, is let's make this place more white. And nobody wants to—the thing is, is the, the reason that the critical social justice is so successful is because society's not the way they say it is. Mm -hmm. If society was as racist and anti-black and everything else as they say it is— um, No one would care. Nobody would go along with the crap they're saying. Right. Nobody would say, yeah, let's have a diversity office. <laughs> Nobody would go along with it. It's only because so many people across the majority, and not just on the left, but across the majority of society, are going to hear words like diversity, and they're going to say yes. And they're going to hear words like racism, and they're going to say no. And they're going to hear words like anti-racism, and they're like, I'm a part of that. And it's all without really understanding the concepts clearly. And like you said, they'll feel like there's something wrong, but they won't know what's wrong. They won't quite—something's not quite there. I get this all the time. I get emails and DMs on Twitter. I get so many notes now at saying that I'm articulating things that they kind of thought but had no idea how to say. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that, again, that's really what the point of new discourses is, at least with regard to, for the moment with social justice. I, it's like I said at the beginning, I'll, 
hopefully eventually not have to focus on freaking social justice all the time and I can expand into, you know, other things that have the same effect. Uh, yeah. I, critical theories in general, people being ideological turds, uh, people hunkering down in their own set of, you know, unfalsifiable beliefs that you can't disagree with, can't argue with, et cetera. You see those in every political movement. You see them in every religious movement and they all stymie our ability to put truth ahead of, um, what we maybe hope or wish is true. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, in general dealing with this issue of how do you get people to communicate better who hold totally different belief systems? Uh, you know, it's always been a problem in a pluralistic society. And as America gets more and more that way, uh, it's going to continue to be an issue. Um, one of the things that I wanted to dive into a little bit here as we get to the end of our time here is, uh, more specifically, what what the problem is with with our political polarization? Because I think uh, you and I would perhaps agree that there actually is kind of a darker side to this that not a lot of people are really thinking about. Um, so I'll just give my own personal historical perspective on this. I started freaking out about the issue of political polarization right around fall of 2016, um, somewhere around August or September of that time leading up to the election. And I was noticing that America was increasingly polarized and that it was, uh, I had the sense that we were perhaps on the brink of some kind of political violence and that something needed to be done about it. Now, I think you caught on to this probably a, a little bit before me because of the, all the work that you've been doing in the recent years. Um, and I really, really like the fact that uh, it, it's, you've gone you've gone from the initial phase of sort of pointing out the flaws in in these um arguments and disciplines and sort of poking holes in them with the so-called squared hoax into actually putting forth a, a sort of positive project because i think especially um people that uh end up criticizing the left which unfortunately these days is almost exclusively the right-wing media um or independent media figures uh, they they end up spending almost all their time just sort of playing this like critical role. Like, look how ridiculous the leftists are being today, or look how absurd these proposals are, or um, how outrageous you know these people are are freaking out about stuff that's min- minor. Um, whereas with new discourses, you've actually like put forward a, a a a positive project that's at least going in some kind of direction. But do you fear that there could be some kind of um, I don't want to say authoritarian, but uh, some kind of racial backlash uh, to these ideas continuing to gain traction. Because unfortunately, I mean, I know you're doing a ton of work more than probably anybody to get get this knowledge out there uh, about the dangers that they pose. But it seems to me like a lot of these ideas are just continuing to gain steam, even with this uh, global crisis. They're, you know, chugging along. Are you worried about a a strong counter response from the right or from other um, majority or historically majority group identities? Yes, <laughs> very much. Um, I can give you a couple of ideas of how significant that concern is. One is, of course, that, you know, I talk with people all over the political spectrum now. So when I talk to right wing people, my loving critics point out that that proves that I'm in bed with the right or that I'm actually on the right myself and pretending not to be. Uh, but I do talk to people on the right a lot in particular, and I keep hearing people on the right now actually saying 
and I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making this up, they're, a lot of them are saying that they're almost to the point now where they're less worried about, and this isn't a majority of them, it's some of them, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're less worried about social justice as a movement itself and more worried about the backlash that they know is coming. That was my fear. They are really afraid of it. And um, I have been saying so when in London last fall, we were Peter and I went on on a show there called Trigonometry, a pretty popular show with a couple guys who I think are both comedians. Um, And they asked about something similar. And Helen and I had just been talking about it the day before about how concerned we are about the there are actually already signs showing mm-hmm. of of a, of a growing um, kind of white identity movement and let's assert traditional gender roles. And so the the possibility of a of of a backlash movement or even just a reactionary movement that's not necessarily backlash and trying to 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 undo social progress that's already well underway. And it's a matter of how bad it will become. And so part of the objective that I've had with new discourses from the beginning was to make sure that that I can do my part to make sure that there's less of a backlash and more of a return toward uh, not necessarily moderate for everybody, but but um, moderate in the sense that it's not extreme, willing to talk to one another. People can be very deep in their own convictions, conservative, liberal, progressive, libertarian. I don't care. They can be very deep into their own side, but they also need to be willing to have dialogue in the traditionally liberal fashion. And so I really wanted to try to, to guide that. And so with new discourses, I haven't really done much with it yet. I think the second one I've done is kind of coming out pretty soon or just came out on Patreon today or something started to kind of podcast a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really had thought about doing a podcast episode, but it seemed weird to do it. It would have been like my first or second episode. It seemed weird to be the thing to launch with. So I didn't do it. Uh, recently, and I don't remember what exactly I had said on Twitter, but I had said that asserting somebody had said, I said something and somebody said back to me that we should be, we meaning white people should be asserting our own identity back before it gets overrun and white culture is important and we should be thinking of it as white culture. And I rejected that and man, for like three days, I just got bombarded on Twitter by white supremacists. I got like I will give, you know, I want to say something here. I get a heaping, steaming pile of poop flung at me by the people on the social justice left on the internet borderline every day. Mm -hmm. Like, it's out of control. You know what I have never got from them? A single, angry, somewhat intimating, threatening email. I got email upon email upon email from these white supremacist people saying that we should be leaning into a white identity and that I'm uh, I got all these moral failures of myself. I mean, so they didn't just blow me up on Twitter. They started emailing me and stuff. It was like crazy. Well, they they take the view. They take the view ironically of the social justice people, which is that you're a race traitor. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it was like, holy crap there. The backlash is already coming. I know what theory will do with it. Trump was Trump's election was part of the backlash that already started. I know what theory will do with it. Theory predicts that a backlash is coming and that the reason is because dominance is going to assert itself at all costs, as opposed to that their ideas are bad and people are scared and don't want them. They can't possibly reflect upon themselves. And so as far as like polarization and a broader picture goes, 
that's part of why, like I get asked all the time, if you're on the left, why are you fighting against people on the left? Well, first of all, I've learned the hard way that once you position yourself on the left, nobody on the right listens to you. They just dismiss you, which is part of the problem. So I can't really reach the right very well, but I can reach into what should be my own side, although they're just rejected me too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one aspect. But another aspect is because I want to talk kind of for a second, to like high order theory. The One of the claims in critical race theory is that race and racism were invented by white people in order to, to marginalize and oppress black people, primarily for the Atlantic slave trade. Then it got extended to other races like Chinese and Japanese and so on when when they came to the U.S. So so, so you did have the divide and conquer strategy, which was part of colonialism. Sure. And so I think they're actually right in that claim for the Mm -hmm. most part. Uh, There's some nuance around it that they're not like they don't get to have 100 percent of their cake, but they probably get 90 percent of it on this one. Um, Maybe 95. They, they, They have a point. They're not wrong. In, in that claim. Now, the thing is, I insist and continue to insist and will continue to argue that the liberal project has been the answer to this, which is ultimately human tribalism problem all along. And so the reason that racism, as understood by social significance being heavy duty put into racial categories so as to, to exert social dominance, the reason that that eventually fell was because we had a universal liberal and individualist liberal approach in say the united states that's why martin luther king is so relevant appealing to the the promises of the constitution of the promises of the the liberal vision of the united states and so that worked and we going into the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s, we were steadily reducing the social significance of racial categories to where people who are outside of all this culture war theory stuff, like my, like my brother-in-law and like normal people, yeah, they like people. why, yeah, normies as they sometimes, they're like, why are people making a big deal about race all of a sudden again? Like I thought we stopped doing that 20 years ago, yeah, and what is this, um, the 90s. Yeah. And so now what happened was liberalism chipped away at the relevance of identity categories, racial identity categories, for example, other identity categories. The liberal attitude on gay rights is some people are gay, get over it. And that's it. That's the liberal attitude on on gay. Some people are gay. You need to get over it. We're all getting over it. You want to some people are Christian. Get over it. You're going to have to deal with the fact that some people are Christian. That's the liberal attitude on these things. That's the pluralistic society thing. Tolerance. That's, that's freedom and, and proper tolerance, yes. And so what's happened is these social theorists in critical social justice, as I call it now, deliberately started to put social significance back into the categories in order to do identity politics. And I'm not like, that's not me riffing. They say it explicitly in the literature they wrote in the 80s and 90s. Their point was to do identity politics. I, I've mentioned Robin D'Angelo's book uh she's got a handful of different places and books where she says this book is unapologetically about doing identity politics so they were put in and to do that we have to put social significance back into racial categories so what they're actually doing is the liberalism slowly literally over the course of centuries Mm -hmm. beat racism down and started very rapidly in the last couple decades to make it irrelevant not totally gone but very much so something people aren't abiding by. Most people don't really, it's not relevant to the way that they live their lives as much as possible. 
And then all of a sudden, the exact thing, which is social significance and racial categories, Mm -hmm. social significance and identity categories, identity-based salience to make make who you are like, I'm gay, I'm disabled, I'm this, I'm that. Identity-first thinking is what it's called in their literature to make that most relevant. That's where bigotry comes from. And if they think that they can put it back in to advocate for themselves as, or for whatever their preferred groups are as special interests, and that's nobody's ever going like the, the like all of the formerly dominant or currently dominant, however they phrase it, historically dominant groups are just going to like, oh, well, we can't fight back forever. They're out of their mind. The way to fix it is to get social significance out of racial and other identity categories as much as possible. Let people be individuals, appeal to universal humanity, recognize, you know, that there are group based issues that we can we, we can try to do something about. But they're also statistical. They're not every single individual. And to minimize that social significance rather than proclaiming it and adding to it. So it's like you ask about why do I fight the left? Why do I take on critical social justice if my thing is polarization is because by increasing that social significance, they are increasing polarization. That's what people are polarizing around. That's or at least one of the things that people are polarizing around. I can tell you that they're polarizing around Trump. Everything Trump touches turns into a polarized issue. Mm -hmm. They can't even talk. You can't talk about prescription drugs. You can't have a name of a virus you can't do anything without turning it into a pol- it doesn't matter we can even take the virus out of it you can go back in time anywhere in the last three years and anything trump has said has become you know one side saying he's horrible one side saying he's absolutely right where he's somewhere in the middle on almost everything like almost everybody is so the polarization as a reaction is a thing i'm not going to say oh well the only the left is doing it it's nothing like that the thing is, is I understand what's going on on the left. I can speak that language. I can help people understand it. And it is a thing that is doing a lot to increase our polarization. And if eventually I need to, I'll start talking about, or if I if I have the opportunity to in a way that's meaningful and reaches people, I'll be happy to talk about the way that that's happening in other realms. I mean, on Twitter, I keep calling. I've been doing it for like years. I keep calling Trump the uh, postmodern conservative. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, like, that's a good term. Somehow it still doesn't like register like that. uh, I'm naming him as part of the same problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who love him when they figure out that I am get really mad at me. And then people who don't like him somehow just don't like me or whatever, just ignore the fact that I do it all the time. So uh, the, the, the whole thing though is these things that, that polarize us. And in particular, I understand the way that theory polarizes things in theory is obviously very uh influential right now are things that i want to talk about and eventually uh help us kind of walk back from those those polarizing or uh ledges i guess yeah so in social science there's actually this i don't know if you've uh are familiar with this term there's this concept called reflexivity yeah yes um, i am okay well then then you know that the the basic idea of reflexivity is that uh, you have some belief about the world and that belief is false, but based on how you're going to react on that false belief, it actually encourages you to basically go down further. And so the result of acting on that false belief uh, creates this feedback loop where the world is even, it's basically reinforced um, until you reach some sort of terminal point where um, there's too much cognitive, cognitive dissonance or just, 
actual dissonance between the real world and what you believe in. It's uh, it's the the mechanism by which uh, this kind of um, flashback that we're talking about could could take place. It's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So a, a reflexive statement would be, for example, that this is a revolutionary moment. Mm-hmm. And so if I were to say that to the right audience at the right time and they kind of started to believe it and make it so and then they start telling other people this is a revolutionary moment. We are now that was or that was a revolutionary moment if it's a video or whatever. It can actually generate that and make it true. Right. Mm-hmm. So here what you have is the situation where you have an entire branch of theory advocating that we need to put social significance back into racial categories that we need to re racially stratify society. Yeah. And that openly saying that, that liberalism is like was a, the equivalent, they don't openly call it a conspiracy, but the equivalent of a conspiracy done by hegemony, Mm -hmm. not by, conspiratorial actors. So it's the the equivalent of a conspiracy that was used to trick minorities into believing that they had more opportunities than they did. And it's like, holy crap, guys, what are you doing? Um, This that's seriously, you know, that's the kind of thing that's reflexive, you know, well, liberalism was just a scam to, to make, make, to cheat minorities and make them think that they had freedoms that they don't because the structure, you know, structural systems of society won't allow it. That's actually a statement that's kind of everywhere in their literature. And then, um, as people start to believe it, you know, they start to see it and they start to to spread it. And and same thing with the backlash, right? Well, if we're going to have racial, if they're going to stand up for their race, we have to stand up for our race. That's again, it's not actually a true statement, (laughs) but it's one that can start to manifest in, in a reflexive manner. Um, and don't, by the way, mention where the idea of reflexivity came from. Oh, <laughs> You're not allowed to, I'm to not cite gonna, the source on that one. <laughs> I, I, I'm half Jewish, so maybe I could get away with it, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you so much, James. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Um, I've got one, one last question for you before sure. uh, we head out here. Um, so like you said earlier, you get tons of, uh, mail. I would, I would call it fan mail, but it's more like distress mail. Um, I do. uh, That's right. It is distress mail. That's so good. You get, you get all this distress mail from people, um, who are normal people who are not, you know, particularly interested necessarily in politics or political theory or the history of, uh, certain political ideas. Um, who feel alienated, who feel confused, who aren't really sure uh, what to do about this stuff, whether it's encroaching on their um, their workplace or their business or uh, inside of their school or their, their kid's school or someone they know that's bought into this that's really close to them. What would your advice be to someone that's encountering these ideas on uh, what to do about it and how to, how to act in, in their own life so that um, they can empower themselves to to take more action on um on on something that they see is potentially corrupting yep um that's yeah i get that at the end of like everything now (laughs) (laughs) um so i would i want to have good news and bad news um the good news is that for for those people i want they they need to realize they're not alone and they're not crazy. This really is happening. It's really not good. They are, their perception on that is correct. Something needs to be done about it. Um, 
And so they're not crazy. They're not alone. The good news is they're not racist. They are not bad people because they recognize this. Um, it can be fought. I know of a handful of examples, institutional examples, where it has been pushed back out. I know that there will, these will be increasing and are increasing, uh, whether it's in schools, whether it's in you know law societies or organizations or whatever. So it can be pushed back against. Now, the bad news is because, in a sense, they speak a foreign language with your own words, with words in your own language. It's like they speak English two or something like that or spanish two um i, I was gonna say prime like in um math like it's a derivative of the language but then i thought i might lose people well it's uh, just like it's, it's like it's, they speak english prime it's an elite, but, uh, it's an elite they, discourse they, right like they are using english in a different way mm -hmm. and therefore there is a learning curve here you will have to, if you want to be able to stand up to this you're going to have to learn about it you're going to have to learn enough about the way that it uses language, enough about the way that it thinks so that you can see what it's doing as it's doing it. A second thing you have to understand is that's, by the way, why I, one of the main reasons I'm creating new discourses and literally the main reason I'm creating the social justice encyclopedia is so that people can understand not just the terms themselves, but the mindset in which those terms are embedded so that they can learn to kind of speak wokish and understand the phrasing and understand the concepts and understand the mindset and spot it and be able to say, no, no, no. Okay. So this is where you go wrong. This is what you, you're, you're trying to speak into, you know, when you talk about wanting more diversity, this is the thing that, but this is the thing you're actually implementing instead. You know, so here's the liberal conception. This is what it should be. This is what works. And here's this other bull crap you're selling us. Right. So you, there, there's a learning curve. You have to learn some of it to be able to do it. That's why, translations from the wokish at least on new discourses exist and new discourses more broadly kind of strongly carries that that goal um a second thing is that it, you are man they are machine and i'm not talking like that they're robots um or ai or anything npcs like well the thing is is that they i mean it in the sense that you are an individual going up often against an institution when you try to do this and you will not win mm -hmm. uh man against machine will the man's gonna lose when i'm talking about like a big you know cog and you're a cog in the machine or whatever you know you're a small thing they're a very big institutionalized thing you're not going to win against that so what you actually have to do is not only is there a learning curve but there's also going to be an organizational curve you're going to have to get together with other people and incorporate yourselves. In a sense, if you think about it, you know, kind of in the same conditions where Marxism came from, the really, really brutal industrial, post-industrial, right after the Industrial Revolution, things got really brutal with the big factory owners. And I mean, what Marx was writing into was a bad time for your average worker. And so what was required, and I know a lot of my conservative friends out there are going to be pissed about this, but the phrasing actually was, is, is unions. Mm -hmm. What happened that started to break apart that power structure was that the worker, the, the, the company had all the power. The workers didn't have any power until they started to organize. So man against machine, they just get fired. They'd get, you know, whatever terrible thing. They have no, no recourse. But the second they started to organize, and it doesn't have to be like a union in the sense that we think of it now. But the second they started to organize, so they'd show up to this. You could show up to the school board meeting alone or like 14 other parents could go with you and all of you 
kind of know what you're talking about and say, no, we're not going to have this agenda. Or you could run for the school board or you could, you know, start trying to get into the whole thing. The way that it has to work is you're going to have to have informed and organized action. And so you're going to have to take steps to do that. You're going to have to start talking to other people, finding out, you know, that there are other people in your community who are like, what are they doing at my kid's school? You're going to have to inform yourselves maybe make a try to form almost little groups advocacy groups lobbying group or whatever it is and to start pushing back on it because the third thing you have to realize and that'll be i guess the last one is that what you're up against is activists they're activists pretending to be scholars they're activists pretending to be hr managers they're activists pretending to be administrators they're activists pretending to be legislators they're activists pretending to be a lot of different things they're taught, journalists they're, they're taught to infiltrate well, yes, and they when they're activists, they don't stop. That mm. they're called activists because they do activity. They kind of constantly show up. So I don't know how many examples there are of of people or, or of these 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 meetings where something gets implemented, and now all of a sudden, like a college is going on the equity plan or whatever, and there were like nine people who showed up to the meeting where it got voted in. Mm-hmm. It's like. They're showing up and you're not showing nobody's showing up to oppose them because it's some boring institutional thing that nobody wants to do. Uh, and so they get their way. So the example, one of the best examples I know of, and I, I want to talk more about this person going forward in the future, is this woman, Lisa Bildy in uh, Toronto or near Toronto. She's a lawyer. She's a member of one of the largest law societies in Canada. And that thing had gone like full diversity statements, the whole thing, you know, um, deep in. And she ran a campaign in just one election cycle for people that are on that board. She went from having an extreme minority of people who were opposed to the social justice agenda to a narrow majority of people who are against it just in one election cycle. And because all it took, it's just a few people. It's just getting enough people who will actually show up and go to the meetings. It's so often that I see videos of like an equity agenda getting passed for some for some institution. And it's literally like a half empty room. There's nobody, you know, there's the, the like seven activists that are doing it. Like a couple of officials who have to be there. Nobody in the audience to ask a question or stand up to it. Somebody's going to have to start showing up. And it, what's funny is how easy pushback on a lot of this stuff at the institutional level will be in so many places, not at the university, by the way, <laughs> that's in deep. But in a lot of places, the pushback is not going to be terribly difficult if people start showing up and it has to be people who are informed and they're going to have to show up in groups. Um, you can't have one person show up because the nine who are already there are going to outvote you. But if you have 14 show up, all of a sudden you're the majority and they only had, you know, nine or whatever. So it's, and it's often small numbers like that. Um, so people are going to have to, who are worried about this, are going to have to take on, they're going to have to shoulder extra burdens. I know we're all busy. We got better things to do and shouldn't have to deal with this crap. But mm-hmm. if nobody deals with it, it's going to take over everything um, as it slowly is or actually kind of rapidly is. So you're going to have to learn about it. You're going to have to organize with people and you're going to have to show up uh, if you want to fight back against it. That's bottom line what it is. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. Get civically engaged. Show up with friends. Know your stuff. Uh, don't turn yourself into an embarrassing troglodyte. You can find uh, James's work over at uh, newdiscourses.com. You can also follow New Discourses on Twitter at New Discourses. You can follow James himself 
at Conceptual James. James, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, I had a good time. I hope it helps some people. Yep, I'll talk to you later. Yep, cheers. Cheers.